Welcome back, and here we go for another episode of FileMaker Talk. Such happy music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good baseline. Dude, always so nice to catch up. It is so nice to catch up, Dr. Petrovsky. I am uh, Matt Petrowski, and you are? Matt Navar. We are together. Matt Squared. We've been, com- we've been using that one for a while, but, you know, if anybody had any faith in us, we'd record more than once every three months. <laughs> no, it's averaged actually once a month for the last couple of years, so still, still not enough, but... Uh, oh, my gosh. It's when we uh, actually come out from behind our day jobs. It's true. And do stuff. So uh, what's been going on with you? Uh, let's see. Uh, really kind of growing and building the business. That's been the main thing. Uh, trying to find developers is kind of the challenge. Oh, that's We're Looking at uh, hiring one to two people right now. So we've got a yeah, – yeah, you've transitioned into a different situation. Are you doing less dev yourself actually? Yeah, I do. Kicking and screaming was that transition uh, because I still really love to code. I really do. Um, But I do it on less projects, fewer projects than I used to for sure. Gotcha. And me, solo, I just do uh, my own development, the magazine, and um, I do some some consulting. I've been doing some lately, which has actually been pretty fun. Uh, Yeah, I think I've been trying to convince you to do more consulting over the years. To expose yourself to more real-world stuff and less laboratory stuff of all the cool stuff you research and figure out. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's Hopefully true. finding some new puzzles and challenges to solve. And Yeah, I'm actually, I, since 16 came out, I haven't spent as much time uh, playing with the new features than I, as I should. I need to make uh, more videos on it. Well, most of my hesitation is usually based on Uh, at least through the magazine, I have a cross-section of people that are still using 15, 14, and 13. Mm. So I can't always immediately jump into, okay, let's use uh, the new Windows for everything, even though the Windows are, you know, a completely different context and wonderful and beautiful, and I just, I don't just start throwing those in projects. So many people end up staying on older versions still. But I guess I, as a developer magazine, I should be like all about just the new stuff. Yeah, you really should. And and actually, as you're saying that, I mean, a couple of our customers stay on the old version, but really not very many. And I can't think of any who are running something older than 14 at this point. Huh. Maybe wow. one or two. But uh, I guess one of the things we always do when we bring on a new customer is is um, get them um, basically get get religion about um, switching over to annual. Uh, volume license, right? So with uh, FLT licenses, um, so they always have the current version. We as developers hate using the older ones. We like all the new things because it saves us so much time. And right. I always just convince the customer that they can get way more bang for their buck by just upgrading to the new version because then we can use these new tools, which give us more speed and power. And that so makes it's sense. it makes well, it really easy for them to stay upgraded. Well, see, I think my the, the vantage point I'm coming from is because uh, when I do these webinars, um, development webinars, teaching people who are FileMaker developers, I get mm-hmm. people in there with, you know, still using 1314. And I'm showing 
15 and beyond features and they're like oh mm-hmm. i can't do that and so it's like they're missing whole big gaps and i can't i guess i should prefix on my webinars it's like if you don't have filemaker 16 don't even think of attending <laughs> yeah well if you don't so, have filemaker 16 get it yeah it's faster it's you know has some awesome features it has some you know, really major features like the native JSON and stuff we were talking about just before the podcast. That's been huge for us. Uh, the, the curl options and the, and the important changes and, uh, insert from URL. Yeah. In fact, um, shortly after 16 had come out, I had done a video prior to 16 being released, um, based on showing people how to use curl through the base elements plugin. Mm hmm. And then when 16 came out, I, there's a free video, I think, on YouTube. If you look, if you search for the keywords uh, FileMaker Dropbox, and it's a free video, that actually uses the, um, the FileMaker's implementation in order to upload a file from a container to Dropbox from within FileMaker. Hmm. And so if anybody's interested and if they're ever wanting to, you know, offload stuff up to the cloud through a FileMaker container, there's a free video up there on YouTube. That I did a little while ago. You can find it on the magazine site too at filemakermagazine.com. Yeah, cool. So, and what's your? We, I want. I wanted to also talk to you about your upcoming video that you're working on. Oh yeah. Um, at some point. This one, I'm actually shooting it today. This is a. Here's my question to you: When you develop a filemaker file, how do you develop? Do you develop on your local desktop, on a, your local network, or on uh, you know the WAN on a, the wide network. Mm-hmm. So, like, where do you do your development on a FileMaker file? Hundred um, percent of the time, it's on a, a WAN hosted file, and that's probably AWS, right? Yep. Okay. So, so, yeah, the first thing we do now when we start a new project is actually spin up a new dedicated AWS server, uh, start a file from scratch. I mean, file new has to be done on the desktop because you don't have a a create file on server yet. Right. Um, but if we did, I would do that. Uh, I think we're going to be switching to using a, a template file that has some basic stuff in it that we use all the time, like a pre-integrated version of logging and stuff like that. Uh, but very light, not at all like um, not at all like a full-blown CRM like some other companies use. Yeah. Um, host the file on the server and basically go from there. And that uh, we do that for. Uh, so that multiple developers can work on it, so the client can see it right away, and so that it has automatic backups and, and protection of itself um, uh, from crashing and stuff like that. That's that's the only way we go. So what you said right there, that's exactly why I di- I'm doing the video that I'm doing. Crash prevention. Knowing okay. that if you develop locally, because there's a lot of FileMaker developers that you're in, uh, you know, you're up in Oregon, so you're really close to probably, you're probably using the Oregon uh, data center for AWS yes. for your development. So, I mean, it's right around the corner from... I, from, I don't even know you. where it is in the state, honestly. <laughs> but, I mean, your latency is going to be micro small. But I imagine there's a lot of FileMaker developers that, you know, they can... They may not be able to make the investment into the knowledge required in order to spin up AMIs on AWS mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. So they're probably just working on their files with FileMaker Advanced on their local desktop. Right. And FileMaker crashes, and as soon as it does, if the file is in an inconsistent state, when it crashes or causes the inconsistent state, you've got a corrupted file. 
potentially. And it sucks as a developer. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. double-click, you open that file, and you hate to see that file that shows up right next to the FileMaker file, which is recover.log. You're yeah. like, great. FileMaker had to go through, check a bunch of stuff, make sure a file was okay. And when you develop on FileMaker server, you just don't have that issue. Yeah, that's true. So the next stage is a lot of people will actually uh, put a box on their network, you know, a small ATX box or a uh, Mac mini, and then they'll put FileMaker server on that and they'll work on their local network. Mm-hmm. The problem is a lot of times if you want to work on that file and you're more mobile, if you're taking a laptop or if you hop on a flight or you don't have that connection to your local network or the wide area network, what do you do? Are you stuck with working with FileMaker Advanced and the file on the desktop? And the answer is no. <laughs> so in, true. The, in this video, I, I basically walk from, from A to Z how to install FileMaker Server by getting the FileMaker developer subscription, which is $99 a year, on your local machine, but doing it away so that it really you aren't going to hit any of the snafus that you might otherwise have with running the server local. Which would basically so, be like making sure that the live databases which are hosted are not backed up by Time Machine. Um, right. Making sure it doesn't start up if you don't want it to boot when you boot your machine, at least on a Mac. Uh, being able to control on the command line when FileMaker is start, server is started and being able to stop it so that you're not actually consuming like ports 80 and port 443 if you use the defaults. Yep. All that good stuff. All those things are controllable on Windows servers too. Yes. Although my would you know well most like when you go to DevCon most FileMaker developers that you see use Macs. Yep. Um, but I would I would imagine lots of internal developers out there who are Windows at work would also develop on a Windows computer. So yeah. Um, so in the video, I'm just I'm, if you've never if you're a FileMaker developer and you're listening to this and you've never installed or aren't even familiar with how FileMaker Server in general works. Installing it on your local machine or going through this process is, number one, really good to know about, to know how FileMaker Server works. If you consider mm-hmm. yourself a FileMaker developer and you've never interacted with FileMaker Server other than minimally through the admin console, you're really shortchanging yourself. Um, because you don't know the fundamentals of, of, say, for example, how Perform Script on Server actually works. You know, that it actually spins up, creates its own folder when you perform the script on server so that if you do an export or import, uh, export of files, then it, everything operates within that one folder. And that folder actually gets a uh, sequential ID number that increments each time that you, the server runs a perform mm-hmm. script on server. You can actually see that happen on your local machine if you have FileMaker server installed on your development machine. Which is yep. pretty In cool. fact, every time a, a every time a PSAW script runs, when you see it as a user running on the computer, it'll actually run with a sequential number. Mm-hmm. So you can actually get a count of how many PSAW scripts have ever run on a server by just testing it. It's yep. pretty cool. Yep, very much. And all so, the so, web uh, access, all that stuff. So if you're running, I, not to give away all the stuff that's in your video, uh, but the one thing that occurs to me, if you run FileMaker server on a notebook computer, is you're sort of, you're sort of uh, changing the IP address of a server, <laughs> which is not a happy thing. And you're also putting the server to sleep, which is not a happy thing. Those are two things servers don't like, having their IP address yanked from, from it and also um, uh, stopping, yep. halting. 
So that's exactly why in the video I show people how to create um, command lines. They're really simple. It's just a single line where you can type into, you open your terminal and you just type FMS start and FMS stop. And that brings FileMaker server up and down if you want to. So if you are concerned about the sleep image, which I haven't had mm -hmm. too many issues on a laptop, if you do sleep it, that sleep state of noticing any corruption on the file. But if you are concerned well, about it, you can definitely shut that down. It's not corruption. It's like if you if you put a server to sleep and you have one IP address on Wi-Fi and then you open it up and you've plugged in Ethernet and they have a different address on Ethernet and you're in a different time zone, a different country um, or a state or whatever, FileMaker Server just in the past has been really unhappy about that. To the And it doesn't corrupt the file, but it makes it like it just gets confused and you, it doesn't even know how to host it. Well, you just have to be aware of, you know, if you are going across different Wi-Fi networks and you're going to get a different IP address through DHCP, then, mm -hmm. yeah, if you're doing something in between that time of when you shut it down and when you open up and it's a completely different IP, sure, you're going to have that problem. But I, if I knew I was doing that, I'd shut the FileMaker server down. Um, you can also, re, uh, since you typically want to use um, URLs, uh, well, I should say domain names instead of IP addresses. You can actually go in. I should. I wasn't planning on putting this in, but I can put it in the video. You can go into the hosts file and make it so that you map whatever domain name you want to your local machine, mm -hmm. whether it's on your local machine or not. So that, like, when you see the server, for example, in my server in FileMaker Server, I give it the name of fmdev.local. Well, you can map fmdev.local to go to whatever IP you want if you modify the hosts file on any given computer. Because that hosts file is the first place that the computer checks for, wh for where an IP maps to a domain name. Then it goes to a DNS. And that's depending on where your machine is set up to look up that name to translate mm. to the IP. So there's a lot of really cool little tricks that you can do by being able to have FileMaker on your local development machine. And it's the, the biggest peace of mind is, number one, uh, that crashing. Who cares yeah. if FileMaker crashes? But then number two, you can run the backups, and those backups can then get backed up by Time Machine. So you yep. have... You, you, I really don't develop with FileMaker locally ever anymore just because... I hate FileMaker crashing, especially yeah. if you use plugins. That cause yeah, it FileMaker almost crash. never crashes on me, but plugins definitely greatly increase that risk. Yes. Uh, and we certainly do use some of them. So. Yep. I use, um. I use 360 Works, which then in turn uses Java, so that can cause a lot of crashing. And then any other, all the other plugins I use can always potentially do cra uh, crashing, especially like mm -hmm. MBS. If you do some really funky code with an MBS, it'll, you can crash FileMaker pretty easy. So that's what I'm teaching people. I'm teaching them, hey, quit using FileMaker advanced with this file that you open locally that's yep. going to go up to production that you just want they want one change but they won't let you make it on the server live which that would be ideal you crash it on your computer you're like oh darn yeah <laughs> that is not a good feeling no it's really not yeah because yeah the, the, all the, all the ex exactly as you say the automatic backups plus just the trust just the risk of the file 
it, I'm trying to think of any times I've actually seen in the last couple of years with FileMaker 15 or 16 where the server itself crashes and the file has to be recovered or, or you know, it's, ex- it's so rare. Like yeah. one or two of my really large customers um, that have basically all ports open to FileMaker, and they use every single technology, custom, custom web publishing, WebDirect, um, ESS, and, you know, all the other stuff, all of it. You know that's a little bit that's higher risk because any of those things could cause problems. Yep. Um, In fact, I think I remember when I first started uh, learning with server, and it was I think it was right around eleven, twelve, the when the file format changed, um, and they had the whole Java based thing. So many people had so many different issues, but now they're getting, I mean, it's getting pretty stable and pretty rock solid. Yep. So. That's that's what I do. Develop local. That's good advice on that thing. Actually, you in California, there's a FileMaker, or not FileMaker, there's an AWS data center, but I think it's in Northern California somewhere. Yep, that's actually where I have my personal AWS hosted, too. Yeah, that's going to be still very fast, latency-wise. Yeah. I mean, is... even across the country, latency, the speed of light is, is pretty fast. Um, yeah i mean they've got it nailed the aws is just the way to go and plus the fact of being able to transfer between zones so if you know you're going to go somewhere else and now with the ability to um, actually attach to different servers based on a global variable is uh really nice if you're going to you know if you've got static data in a database (laughs) funny Mm -hmm. uh that you're going to map then you could you, you can basically you know offload people to whatever zone they need to be in for AWS stuff. That's true. That's nice. That global feature or that feature to be able to um, have a file open and select a data file based on uh, a global variable doesn't work as expected. No. We've had a lot of problems with it. Huh. Um, So, and it's basically the the list of things that that are um, uh, that are dependencies and so, like, if a file has an open on on open script, which goes to a layout and does something, that script has to load, and that script will will load and try to x and try to um, parse out what it needs before the variable will load. Even if the very very first line of the script says, "This is the variable for your data file," FileMaker cannot even make sense of the script. Uh, it, it'll try to make sense of the script before it tries to execute that first line of code. And if part of the script references the data in the data file, it'll open up or try to open up the data file, but it can't because it's only... So there's a lot of other stuff you have to do. It's not as simple as that. That's actually Uh, what you're saying. That's one one of the core issues that if you don't want FileMaker to automatically open any referenced database in the external data sources, you have to make sure that, number one, if you're doing, if you're accessing it just for the purpose of via a script, you got to make sure that there's no references to it anywhere. It can't mm-hmm. be on, you know, referenced on the opening layout or any layouts that are hit as part of the startup, and it can't mm-hmm. be referenced in any of the scripts that would call a script. If you're going to use that variable, you have to have two different scripts, and you've got to perform script the other script so that before it actually hits the script that makes the call to the file. Mm-hmm. That the variable is set before that happens. Even when we did all that, we had problems. Jeez. And and uh, like, especially like on iOS, 
uh, on some other in some other situation. It wasn't. It just didn't work 100 percent of the time. I think the solution though was a, was to add a third file, which was like a controller file, um, and that seemed to that seemed to work. I'm not exactly sure how that all. I'll report on that when we record next time because there's a couple of other developers here at AppWorks figured it out uh, and did all the testing. Um, because we've got several different scenarios where we're really using that feature. Because it's, it's sure, pretty FileMaker's, big. FileMaker has gotten way more... Um, it's become a developer program. I mean, it's way more finicky. Yep. You have to actually think and know about things and know how it works underneath the hood. You know, when I compare to FileMaker 3, when I, you know, FileMaker 2 when I started, and then FileMaker 3, 4, and 5 is where I remember a lot of my... Uh, growth as a developer it was really hard to mess things up it was very much just Mm -hmm. a sequential if you knew the script step the script step was going to do what you wanted it to do you just needed to think out the process so forth now you've got to know you know how is the layout going to render do i need to call a you know a refresh object script step in order to get this to work. You know, what's the penalty of a refresh window over a refresh object? And, mm-hmm. you know, what? there's so many little uh, things that deal with the minutia of FileMaker now that it's just a different world. Totally. I don't know the, I don't know the trade-offs between refresh window and refresh object. <laughs> oh, refresh window is really costly. If yeah, you, I if mean... You, if you can do refresh window, because refresh... Uh, or refresh object, refresh window is going to cycle through all of the objects right. and do a lot more than just a refresh object. But, sure. But, it, but if it happens in, uh, you know, 100 milliseconds, if it's, if it's a tenth of a second, then what do I care? Oh, that's all based on who's using the file, where they are relative yeah, yeah. to the server, and all that other stuff. True. So, and if yeah. you're even if it's if it's 100 milliseconds and you're doing it, uh, you know, very very frequently, if a user in a given session would do that, you know, 10 times an hour or 100 times an hour, then that 100 milliseconds is a lot. It would definitely add up. Um, yep. But yeah, yeah, some of the other. But yeah, a lot of the, the other features that FileMaker has, I totally agree with you. In super awesome features like perform script on server. Um, give you the ability to say, oh, well, rather than creating this record synchronously, I'm going to do this big script asynchronously. I'm going to fire it off on the server, have it go look up this thing, go to this other table and look up some data, um, create a record, export a file as PDF, re-import some stuff in from like an Excel spreadsheet, whatever, and then figure out some way to notify me that that stuff has happened by refreshing or whatever mechanism. Um, and yeah, you have to know like debugging that and all the other stuff. Debugging perform script on server and just yep. understanding exactly what it's going to do. And um, while we're geeking out on that, that's actually one of the reasons I really, really like separation model because you can have all your perform script on server scripts run in the data file, which does not have an unopened script. And then it's that much less to open. So you, when the file opens on the server to do its work, there is no UI. There is no um, overhead. It's just basically kind of running raw code. Yeah. Um, exactly. In fact, easier just, to debug, faster to execute. I just released my most recent video, which was last week. Was um, I did a video, and, and it 
I keep referencing all the free ones, which is good for people who are listening mm-hmm. to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to the FileMaker Magazine website, uh, like as of the recording of this video, there is a, um, I put it up there. It's called Startup Splash Screen. So I've been doing this series. I have a database of uh, custom functions, and I've been using this database in order to teach people you know, how I actually, from start to finish, develop a FileMaker database for this particular tool. Well, I decided to do the splash screen version for free, and the splash screen actually opens up on a layout tied to a table called startup, which is intentionally empty. We call it, uh, we did this all the way back in like pre-2010 called Low Impact Startup. I think mm-hmm. I, uh, the first person that I heard it from was um, Perrin, who was working for Dr. Bot, and he also worked with Chris Irvine. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was a, we put that into FileMaker standards that every time that you start up a FileMaker file, the initial within the file options, that file options goes to a layout that is intentionally tied to a table that intentionally has zero records or at a bare minimum one record mm-hmm. so that it can't even load you know, data until right. you decide as a result of the startup script where you ultimately want to go. Right. Because, I mean, you've got, say you've got five different people coming into a FileMaker database. Are they all going to the same startup layout? Or maybe you have a manager that's going to a different layout than a data entry person. Right. So make that decision in the startup script, not, uh, you know, dump everybody onto the same layout with 10,000 records that load. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's especially bad if you have uh, higher counts. I did some metrics years ago on how long it takes to load the index, uh, it's, it's a certain number of seconds per million records. Yeah, because you were running some crazy A yeah, file I a that billion. was like... <laughs> and then I... Uh, so, so if you have a startup script that just goes to a layout and then goes back, and that record has a million or a hundred million or a billion records in it, it's going to take... Well, I think on the billion, it takes like six minutes or something. Right. Per billion, something like that. I can't remember the metrics now, but it's it's not small. It's actually a really, really big number, which doesn't matter at all if you have only a million records. But if you have many, you know, if you if you get serious counts up there, like some of our solutions that we have um, have log tables, and the log tables can get up to ten million records in just a couple of years. If you're tracking things like record views and individual changes of fields. Um, uh, and you know, really detailed logging. Yeah, the count in that table, uh, the size of the log table will actually exceed the size of all the data and all the other tables combined. <laughs> Time to uh, cold storage archive. <laughs> yeah, well, but that doesn't, but that doesn't really matter because storage is so cheap, and because creating a log record so fast, especially if you do it asynchronously with Perform Script on Server. Yeah, it only Which matters is, if you don't want to access that log data because you're not using it and it's occupying so much space that when you bring the server back up, it's like if if it crashed in that worst case scenario, mm-hmm. it's got to basically you know verify that stupid gig multi gigabyte file for mm-hmm. data that you're you know don't super care about. Yeah, well then that's why you can also keep a like if you if you really want a good disaster recovery plan, you would have a clone of the log file. And when you spin up the server after a big catastrophic crash, you would spin it up with the clone and then offline afterward, uh, open up the 
the log file and re-import whatever data you want to keep from it, whether it's the whole thing or just the last year or whatever, into the current log that's that's now getting records populated. Because oh. this log table doesn't matter if the data is out of order. Well, you know um, what they do in the old um, uh, OPSEC uh, industry, the uh, security industry? Mm-hmm. Uh, remote logging. So basically, if you want to, because what happens is when a hacker gets into a system, if the logs are local on the machine, they can mm-hmm. modify the logs and erase yes. their own tracks. So <laughs> most highly protected systems do off-box logging. So in, in the FileMaker world, if you were going to do that, you could set up a dedicated server where who cares how large the log gets, but that log is just you know referenced through an external data connection to that right. off-box logging. So it, it opens the file, does the logs, and then, well, it wouldn't be very efficient if you're doing a lot of logging. You'd want to keep it open, but it could be another box in the same data center. I mean, there's so many different ways you can configure and part and piece FileMaker these days. Yeah, that's true. That, that would be that'd be actually pretty trivial to set up. You could even have like a, because we have just one logging script that makes a log record on the local file. Mm-hmm. And we do, you know, lock that one down. But still, there are some people who have access to the log and could actually, you know, tamper with it. Um, but the script could could also, at the beginning of it, um, create a log record uh, on some other technology entirely, uh, or even with FileMaker by using a um, by using uh, the FileMaker data API or some other mechanism. Oh yeah. You know, some other call. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can use syslog, the actual operating system log, and then you can configure that to actually do off-box logging, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can capture whatever you want and put it wherever you want. It's it's a wonderful world. Yeah, simple terminal command or whatever. Yeah, that's good stuff. So. I, have, I, have, I have a little, t- I'm not sure if you call it a tip. It might be a question. Okay, so you know one of the new commands that we've got recently is truncate table. Uh-huh. So truncate table is cool because that one script step will delete all the records in a table, um, not just the found set, but like everything, and it does it incredibly fast. So if you, if you populated a table, like imported a bunch of data, and it was wrong, and you need to import it again, and let's just say it's 100,000 records – just going in and deleting 100,000 records in the past took forever because it was deleting them like one record at a time in a big loop. It was round trip between server and client. A lot so of round trunk, trip calls. So, so here's what I've observed, and I'd love to get feedback. If you, do, if you do a truncate table, it's ridiculously fast, hundreds or thousands of times faster than the old way. Right. But if you actually go to the table and you hit show all records and then you emit a couple and you do a delete, then you're back into the old way. It's, but if you go to a record, a table, and you say show all records and you say delete all, it just sends a truncate table command and it happens incredibly fast. Huh. So FileMaker sort of quietly does the, does the right thing. It's like, hey, you have all the criteria met. I'm just going to do a truncate table because you're looking at all the records. Well, and I I'll, do it, that I'll do it quickly. Like a, I didn't know that. That sounds like a, you know... Hey Clay, con- can 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 you confirm this? And yeah, well, and it's actually pretty have. easy to test by just doing it. And I, I actually did a couple of tests on that exactly, and it it really did look like it was working huh. correctly. Even if you do it manually, like just go to the menu and say delete our records. That's awesome. It doesn't even have to. Yeah, it is awesome. 
Well, that makes. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I, and I've heard of from uh, some developers, like uh, Vince Manano, well-known developer, friend of mine. Um, he actually, in some of the systems, I don't know if they do this for all their systems over at Beeswax or just you know, a few of them. He uh, was opposed to, and this, was, again, was just conversation at a point in time, so mm-hmm. uh, he could very easily come back and say, no, we use cascading deletes. Uh, <laughs> he said that they did not use them. So the little checkbox in there and FileMaker's mm-hmm. relationship dialog box to delete related records, they did not use that because it was slow. Which, inf- which required them to, within their code, enforce uh, cascading rules so that if a parent record was, uh, was loaded and they delete that, then they have to do the you know, go-to related and then you know, truncate, and they were using perform script on server because it had just mm-hmm. come out, whether that was 13 or 14, oh boy. in order to manage their own cascades. Now, if, you, right. if I went more than three levels deep with that, I don't know that I'd want to do that. It'd be pretty easy to script, but it's so convenient that FileMaker takes care of it. So it'd be interesting to hear from people how many people do use cascading deletes versus those who don't and who so, manage it themselves. I think those six checkbox, uh, checkboxes on that dialog box you're talking about, so the, the basically it's three on each side of the relationship. The creator-related record, deleter-related record when the parent gets deleted, and sort – uh, I think all of these those three fall under the pra- fall under the category of worst practice, and I pretty much never use any of them. Oh, now you got to be kidding me! The the I call it the obligatory create. Some people call it magic key. The ability to create related records that's that's a must have. Nope, I don't use it. You, so you script your new records by going to the other context, create the record, and capture pretty the ID much, yeah. and come back. Yeah, pretty much because yeah. um, because <laughs> you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find out there in the world. Actually, let me just back off a second on that one. If you have, let's say, a company and the and the and you want to put a portal on there for all the people who work at the company, and so you just create a line, and so if you, your portal has, let's say, six rows of height, and for most companies you really only have one or two contacts, but some of your companies you might have twenty. Go out there and find some website that forces you to the scroll to the bottom of the portal in order to add a line. Go ahead. I'll wait. Oh, no. There, there's Tick. a total solution Talk. to this, though. Tick. <laughs> Talk. You, I'm you just can... telling you, you can't – there isn't any widget out there in the world that works the way portals work in FileMaker where you have to scroll to the bottom to add a line. I know there's some simple workarounds, but I really, that. really, really hate the blank line at the bottom of the portal. It just doesn't exist anywhere outside of FileMaker. And so for that reason, I don't use that feature. So you've used the, the false portal trick, haven't you? Where you basically you create a copy of the exact same portal that you're working with, where all the data is shown, mm-hmm. and you go into the portal setup dialog box by double-clicking the portal, and you click the filter option, and you just type in the word false. Mm-hmm. That forces FileMaker to show the record creation uh, row. And you can put that second portal anywhere you want, to the side of the portal, above the portal, to the other side. You don't have any extra relationships. You don't have any extra fields. It's the, just a copy of the portal with a filter that shows the record creation row only. Okay. That's, that's, like, that's the solution to, to FileMaker's annoyance of having to scroll to the bottom record. Got it. So you can put that above the portal... 
And then you're uh-huh. actually working like other things do in the real world. Yes. You can but, put it anywhere. But your portal still shows a blank line at the bottom. Oh, Because yeah. the relationship has the box checked. Yes, that's true. And anything that's on that portal, you have to do a hide condition. So if you don't want, like, for the buttons, for the fields, whatever, you do have to use the hide calc. And basically, you're going to say, um, not is valid. And you can okay. point, point to the ID field. Or you can so do I, an is empty on the ID field. And that will hide the, everything on the bottom row. So it's basically it. the annoyance of just seeing a blank row when you scroll down to the bottom of the portal. Well, you're sort of stacking two silly FileMaker trips to solve this problem, I think. But um, <laughs> Yes, FileMaker which is, is always which is okay. around Pro. But, but it's not, right? There's ways to do it where it's absolutely not, and we really try to avoid those workarounds. So, like, if you just uncheck that box, then, yeah, you do actually have to have a way to make a – you have to decide how the user is going to create a related record. So but this now is really we have, interesting, though. You're now taking the burden where you have to script the process. Before – all you had to do is make a copy of a portal. So here's the the. And by the way, there the are challenge. I absolutely violate this rule for certain portals, right? Like if it's a phone number for a person, there's really only ever going to be two. You know, in a common situation, there's only going to be two or three. People don't have twenty phone numbers. True. Or very very rarely. But so, companies often have more than six people, so it's like like. There's certain situations where I would use it, and there's certain situations where I never would. And my other point is, if you take a look at really, really well-designed applications and websites out there and follow UI trends that are happening in the world, they have other better ways of creating related records. And it's almost always like a plus button to the upper right of the portal that pops up a card window or a popover or some other widget that says, what's the information you want to do? And then you can validate it. You've got global fields or whatever widget you're going to make. You can check and see if they actually type something in or if it was valid or if it was enough information or if it was a duplicate record they were creating. I always want to control stuff like that. True. I mean, that is, that is how the web essentially works. Nothing hits the database until it's actually been pre-validated. And typically that can be done with JavaScript if it's in a web browser. And you're putting, the data itself is not being captured directly to the database. Now, I mean, it's not being captured to FileMaker either until the, the commit is actually submitted, which can be a click or a record change or anything like that. But True. Yeah, that's the that's a that's a, we cho- we need to come up with something like a FileMaker Smackdown. What wins, a checkbox and a copy of the portal, or a scripted record creation? Dun dun dun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, but I love man. stuff like that. It actually it, it shows me how much I think about and care about all these little features like this. And when I teach FileMaker classes, I teach I go over all kinds of things that I think are that exist in the product that have existed for a really long time. Uh, that I think are worse practices. Like, for example, um, I think we've talked about it on the podcast, the, the checkboxes for validation on a newly created record that say, if you're making a record that's a primary key and you're using get UUID, there's also a checkbox for ensure that it's actually unique. Like, really? And also <laughs> ensure that it's not empty. Well, those really, those, those are okay until no. you start to import no. a lot of records. Uh, uh. I mean, it, you don't get the you won't get the impact because the index is fast. So when it creates a new record, 
that index lookup is going to be quick. But if you're doing an import of records and you're importing 10,000 records and it's trying to look against that unique, that, that'll be slow. So it's not actually fast. The index scales. Uh, it's, it's not a linear hit. It's a, it's a what's that other curve? It's a geometric. Exponential? Exponential. It's an exponential pain is what that one is. So it's really fast when you have 100 records. But if you get large record counts, that search to see if it's unique um, will go ahead and you know, open up a table with uh, you know, 100,000 records or 100 million records and do a search for unique. So that's a lot of trust, point. though. That's a lot of trust that nothing is ever going to get into your system that is a duplicate. Well, for, okay, so that's part A. Is it, it, you're you're solving a problem that doesn't exist, in my opinion. With a if you're using a get UUID, and you've got the key set up correctly to make a new key, even if you duplicate a record. Whether you, uh, you, you and you're right, users could import data and then say don't do automatic enter, which means no ID would even be created. Right. But if they do that, or if they if they have a script that does it, or some way to clear it. Or they somehow make a record that, that defining all odds makes a duplicate ID. There's nothing the user can do. They, they can't back out of it. All they can do is revert, deleting the whole record. But they can't fix the problem and they get no useful information to actually act on the problem. If they import records and they import bad records, they can't fix it. They're just, they get an, an alert telling them to fix something that they have no power to do. So what's and your no solution knowledge of to do it. if you're... Um I mean, the UUID is, is not an issue, but let's say there's some other field. What's your solution if you're not going to use FileMaker's checkbox for ensuring unique on validation in order to validate the field? So like, basically... Would you do uh, a lookup or an execute SQL or an actual nope, find? Nope, none of that. Basically, this is the job of a database administrator to be looking at the database and checking for errors like that. But in a table with a UUID... I've only ever seen one circumstance where there was a duplicate key or a null key. Well, let's just say duplicate key. And that is if the, the checkbox didn't get set correctly so that if you duplicate a record, it uses the same UUID. That's, that's an error in programming, but that's one I've seen before, which could also happen in a serial number. Um, yeah, and you can have a uh, less knowledgeable developer that they can get in there and actually uh, put something other than just the get UUID function, which could cause a duplicate if they're, you know, depending on what they're doing to the ID. I don't know. I don't know. There's just there's a few things like that that when I've really thought about them and I've actually seen how it plays out in the real world when a user encounters the problem, that it ends up solving it ends up actually causing much more harm than it solves by, by the existence of the feature. So like a developer like you think, oh, this totally makes sense. We should enforce that it's a unique key, even though it's a UUID. It's also, there's also a personality aspect that comes into this. How paranoid are you? So like yeah, some, developer, some developers are going to be much more uh, cautious and some are going to be much more lax. Like, oh, okay, we'll just keep it like this when the system hits an issue and breaks, then we'll fix it. <laughs> Versus I'm going to make sure that not a single thing is going to go wrong in this system. <laughs> or well, as best I can. There's only limits. you know. So the user can still, well, if, assuming the user can import data, and by the way, uh, a paranoid person would never allow a user to import data into a table. Not because the database I'd import into a... Into a staging. Yeah, yeah. into a, uh, you know, a pre-filtering database. Yeah, I, I totally agree. 
So, but if you if you could import data into the actual table, your company table, which has a primary key, and you didn't know that you had to leave that box checked to automatically create default values like keys, then you actually could create a whole bunch of records with no primary key. <laughs> Rot row. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And for that reason, you know, be, that's why we have controls to prevent importing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, importing into it like what I call a staging table and then from there selectively, you know, confirming that the data that they put is correct and having it go through a script that one record at a time uh, creates the records in the other table or tables and populates it correctly. Yeah. Anyway. So. Good stuff, man. Dude, <laughs> we're, we, we're going down that rabbit hole. Have we talked? How much have we talked about Slack in on our podcast? Have we? Have we never praised it? Really? I mean, well, it's going to be. It's my, It's not FileMaker, it. which we haven't done in forever. Um, Slack is a free tool that's available for every platform. There's an app for Mac and PC. There's an app for the for uh, your phone, uh, and also a website. And you can set up a Slack channel actually it's a not really a channel but a slack system um for internal communication on any project yep and it is awesome yep and you can the one of the coolest things that i like on uh, for example on the client for iphone is you can set which channels you actually want to get notified so if you create a channel on a per project basis as a consultancy mm-hmm. Once that project is done, you can turn off notifications for that. And for the one that is active, you can sweat noti- uh, set notifications. So, I mean, it just comes up right on your, you know, on your front screen whenever anybody posts anything about it. And there's so many integrations for Slack, too, to, to be able to, you know, share resources and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like there was this evolution of chat clients. I don't know if you remember, but on the Mac, Adium... Well, there was mm-hmm. uh, AOL's AIM, and so you're using basically one of the vendor's chat clients, which all of yep. those spawned out of the in-app. So you go all the way back to AOL. You had chat yeah. in the actual app. Right. Then they, the Internet happens, and then they make their, uh, their actual chat-dedicated clients. Then you have the battle of uh, the best uh, chat clients that combine all the different vendors. So you've got right. Adium or something like that. Uh, right. I forget what it was on Windows where they like you could do, you know, CompuServe, AOL, and whoever else had chat. ICQ and yeah, all the other yeah, vendors. ICQ on- and now sure. and then it evolved and now it's Slack and so whatever is going to come next, you know, in terms of the communication stuff. Well, Slack is kind of like. I don't know if this takes you really far back, but this thing called First Class that used to exist. Yeah. It was like an email and a chat program, and it was awesome by Softark out of Canada. Yep. Um, I remember that. And it was all about that back in the 90s. So Slack is that same kind of communications thing where you have all the channels, and you only get, like you say, notified on the channels. Like if, if somebody else is updating something on something you care about, you can glance at it and see the channels that you haven't yet read. Um. It's a searchable history. Searchable history. It's totally awesome as a replacement of email for internal communication for any organization. That's the way I would say it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it basically, there is no reason to email anyone else at your company if you have Slack, pretty much. Yeah. So client emails are still useful sometimes. Yeah. 
other than the fact that it, well, I mean, it, email's the same thing. If you're using Google uh, Docs or Google Apps, Google's storing your emails. Well, Slack's storing your conversations. So it's mm-hmm. all stored on a server somewhere else that you don't control. Yep. But for the paranoid, those, those people are probably still running their own mail servers. Yeah, and it's uh, Slack is free. Uh, I think the only limitation on the free version is you can only search and view the last ten thousand items. Yeah, it got it got to the point of usefulness at AppWorks that we decided to pay the per user fee, uh, really cheap, a couple bucks per user per month, something like that, um, so that we have the whole history and can add you know more more controls and features and. And also, as you say, there's tons of API integrations. It's a pretty awesome tool. It's definitely my my It's Not FileMaker for the, all of 2017. <laughs> well, since you mentioned that, I should probably set up a uh, FileMaker magazine uh, Slack group. Yeah, that'd be a good there, idea. There's a, there's a couple of FileMaker ones out there that I'm part of, and I, I use it for internal communication with a couple of uh, companies that I work with. Yeah, me too. I'm on one, two, three, four, five, six Slack groups right now. Oh, geez, that's a, that's overload for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't really look at all of them all the time, but we have two of them dedicated for customer projects, uh, one internal one, and then a couple of other FileMaker geeky ones. Now, are you talking about groups or are you talking about channels? Because within groups. a group, you have multiple channels. Yeah, these are these are the different Slack groups that I'm in. Uh, each of which have channels. So like AppWorks, we have, I don't know, 100 channels, something like that. Basically, every project we're working on actively has a channel where we can all talk about uh, things about that project. So, hey, anybody experiencing a problem with such and such server? It seems to be running slow. Oh, I see the problem. It's a perform script on server that's gone awry. Um, hey, we finally got the contract that, you know for this one other project. Now we can get started. Or any kind of information that's news. Um or any way, any kind of a communication where people can help each other out in real time. Yeah. Because um, then you type something and you just glance over at Slack and it shows up, oh, there's a new message on that particular thing. It's, it's great. That's the key phrase right there, in real time. Email is not in real time. And, right. they, of course, they have announcement methods where you can do an at channel and you can do, you know, at everybody in the company or everybody in that group. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a powerful tool. They've really souped up the whole premise of chat yep for sure of course there's always irc oh, forget oh the old irc <laughs> i do forget the old irc what else do you have for me today maddie oh i think i've blabbered on and on about all kinds of the stuff that <laughs> you and i are working on of course we always get in those nice debates about I love what that. the heck you don't like this stupid check what's wrong with you I really don't exactly <laughs> create related records <laughs> that checkbox is awesome <laughs> We did that on that FM train thing we did, too. And uh, it's funny. There's a guy that uh, we're good friends with, Scott. Yeah. yeah out there, Scott. He uh, he constantly says, you know what? That was one of the best things was just watching you two go at it and discuss the differences of your approach in terms yep. of FileMaker development. And what that did is I didn't realize, you know, you're always pushing for your own way to be the best, but it exposed people to how many different ways there are to solve problems with yep. FileMaker. And there's just there's an almost you know, an infinite number of ways that you can do yeah. things, and no right way. You know, I think that I I love the I love the thing of debating it and really understanding the pros and cons of a given method because there's no right data model for anything. There's no, you know, there's there's maybe like some best practices, but even there's there's always exceptions to every rule. Yep. Dep- 
Well, it depends on including. how the data is being accessed. How is it being used? It doesn't mean that you know structuring it fully normalized is going to work. So yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, we're at fifty minutes, so we're probably good for a wrap. We're good for a wrap. If anybody, Always good to talk to you. If anybody uh, actually listened to this whole thing, holy cow! <laughs> so you, you know how it goes. Oh, we get the smooth jazz <laughs> outro. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, always nice talking. Good to talk to you. Bye. All right. See ya.